On October 1st, young Iraqis took to the streets in Iraq's southern provinces to demand basic services like clean water and electricity, job creation and an end to widespread corruption. The government's response to the protests was swift and brutal, killing over 100 people and leaving a further 6,000 wounded. Demonstrators said they were set upon by armed forces and attacked with rocket-propelled grenades and sniper fire. Anger at the violence meted out against demonstrators only served to inflame the situation further, driving more Iraqis out to protest and garnering global attention to their cause. Just as their cause seemed to be gaining momentum, the protest came to an abrupt stop. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Taylor Heyman. This week we're asking, where are Iraq's protests heading? Protesters pulled back to allow the pilgrimage of Arba'in to take place peacefully. The pilgrimage is one of the holiest events in the Shia Muslim calendar. It attracts around 30 million people who walk from cities including Basra and Kirkuk to Kerbala to mourn the martyrdom of Prophet Muhammad's grandson, Imam Hussein. The protests are far from over though. The young people driving the demonstrations are planning a return on the 25th of October. Young people are rallying around a non-sectarian figurehead, General Abdul Wahab al-Saadi. Al-Saadi's demotion from deputy head of the elite counter-terrorism service and transfer to the defence ministry in September was one of the elements that inspired the protests. Al-Saadi, a three-star general who is credited with leading the fight against ISIS, has not commented on the protests or his current position in government. As Prime Minister Adel Abdel Mahdi reaches his first year in the job, His pledge to root out corruption and unify and rebuild the country after a brutal three-year war against ISIS looks further away than ever. The National spoke to former US ambassador to Iraq, Douglas Silliman, before the protests began, and he expressed his concern about the country's youth. The Iraqi population has now crossed 40 million people in 2018. About half of those people, well, two-thirds of those people have been born since 1990, since the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. Uh, about half of them have been born since 2000. And comparing that, for example, to the Emirates, the Emirates, maybe 25 or 26% have been born since 2000. There is a huge youth bulge in, in Iraq. And between now and 2020, there will be, now there's about 850,000 young Iraqis graduating from secondary school or university every year. This age group is protesting Iraq's broken political and economic system, an age group which barely remembers Saddam Hussein's Ba'athist dictatorship, which discouraged sectarianism but brutally punished dissent. Nadia Mohammed, a writer and analyst on current affairs in Iraq, who has lived in the country under both Saddam Hussein's iron-fisted rule and after the 2003 US invasion, explains. Apologies for the background noise here. Nadia was in a cafe when we caught up with her. The age range between 17, 18, which is the year when they finish uh, secondary school, and 25, 30, when they are in, in urgent needs to find job opportunities. This is the age range of protesters because most young people have either finished secondary school and they are looking into going to the university, but they can't. They are desperate, they are frustrated, and protesting against the government is the only way to express their frustration. Pesha Magid, a journalist who has been on the ground in Iraq during the protests, 
has spoken to many of the demonstrators and their families over the course of the uprising. She says this generation is driven by different motivators than their parents and grandparents. You know, we are not really bound by the same ideologies as our parents' generations. You know, we, we're, not, we're not of, you know, like the sectarian uh, war era. We're not the Saddam era. And what we care about is getting our basic rights. What the reality has been is just a government that seems incapable of giving them the most basic services. It's not just a lack of jobs Iraqis are dealing with. The electricity sector and its infrastructure never fully recovered from the first Gulf War in 1990 and the US invasion of Iraq in 2003. Just as provision was expanding across the country, ISIS moved in, putting a further halt to power generation. Water supply is also a huge issue, as poor management fails to protect vital water sources from contamination. In 2018, in the country's southern Basra governorate, at least 118,000 people were hospitalised with rashes, abdominal pain, vomiting and diarrhoea due to bad water quality, Human Rights Watch found. Like many modern protest movements, including Hong Kong's pro-democracy fight and Extinction Rebellion's global protest, Iraq's uprising feels organic. There is no distinct leadership, says Pesha. Well, what everybody wants to emphasise when you speak to them is that there isn't a formal leadership. Uh, you know, past protests in Iraq have had formal leadership that have also negotiated with the government to a certain extent. And when you talk to, uh, you know, former protest leaders, they say, no, we're really not involved with organising this. There is one crucial difference between young Iraqis and the likes of Extinction Rebellion, though. They are now organising their protests without the internet, after the government restricted its use in an effort to end the unrest. Here's Nadia. The internet is disconnected in Iraq and it only works between 9 to 3 o'clock, and that's these are uh, work hours for the government department. And after 3 o'clock, there is no internet. And even during that time, not all uh, social media platforms work in Iraq. So basically, uh, the government, the Iraqi government, is disconnecting the Iraqis from the rest of the world and also tries to cover of the crimes that are happening now in Iraq. So it's back to basics, says Pesha. People have been organizing really organically just by calling friends in their neighborhoods and figuring out, okay, we're going to meet here and then we'll try to get to Tahrir Square. But everything's been done, uh, I think, a bit informally. There is currently a lull in protests for the Arbaim pilgrimage, but demonstrators plan to be back on the streets on the 25th of October. The planned redoubling of efforts next week shows the brutal crackdown which caused the deaths of over 100 Iraqis and the government's concessions have failed to scare or satisfy the youth enough to end their protest. Iraq's military has admitted that excessive force was used against the anti-government protesters and the country's national security adviser, Falah al-Fayed, pledged to fight corruption and open an investigation into the deaths of the demonstrators. Despite this, many still fear the return of snipers that plagued the first round of protests and more violence from security services. However, the threat of more violence is unlikely to keep demonstrators off the streets, says Pesha. I think they expect that there will be great violence from the government, but I also think that a lot of people have said to me that they are willing to take that risk and are willing, in you know, their words, uh, to be martyred for the cause. Um, which is, you know, a hard thing to hear coming out of a 17-year-old's mouth. Um, But I think a lot of people feel like they need to make a change, that this, you know, current reality is not sustainable. And also a lot of people are really angry. You know, they've had their friends killed. They've had their family members killed. You know, uh, one young guy that said uh, said to me, which was interesting, um, his name's Ali, he said that, 
you know, he'd grown up in Baghdad during a time when, you know, car bombs could happen at any moment. So he wasn't, he said he didn't feel afraid of going to the protests and risking his life. He, you know, grown up with, uh, you know, risks all around him. And he thought that the, you know, fighting for the future was the more important thing. In response to the protests, Prime Minister Abdel Mahdi reshuffled his cabinet and promised jobs for graduates, instructing the oil ministry and other government bodies to include a 50% quota for local workers in future contracts with foreign companies. Your demands in countering corruption, providing job opportunities, taking care of the youth, and the comprehensive reforms are rightful demands. And the concerns that you are expressing are our main concerns, which we follow, meet, and respond to every legitimate demand. Here's Pesha's view on Mehdi's reforms. Almost no one I've spoken to has really thought that the uh, uh, that Mehdi's, you know, shuffling around with ministers and promises to investigate the deaths of the protests had been enough. They want a complete change of the government. It's hard to predict. Things are in flux right now. I don't think that those actions are going to quell the anger. Nadia says the government is failing to connect with young people and instead of trying to understand their concerns is working to counter their arguments. Hope for change is small, she says. No matter how many activists have highlighted to the government that this is a new generation, the government is not listening. The government channels and media outlets is still spreading the same narrative. And this shows that the, the, the government is not willing to connect to the people, not willing to listen to those young protesters. It shows that the government probably doesn't care to listen to them, or it needs to update itself about the the young people's dreams and what they aspire to, and let go of these outdated narratives. It's over. This generation doesn't remember it, doesn't buy into that kind of rhetoric, and does not follow that narrative. So what does the future hold for Iraq if protests escalate? Well, there are a few possible outcomes. The protests could force a fresh election, a move that is likely to delay the reforms demanded by the demonstrators while political figures and sects jostle for position. The military could step in, staging a coup and installing a leader of their choice. Not a safe option for ensuring a stable future for a country that has had enough of unrest. Civil unrest could also take hold if the protests are met with any more violence by the state. Finally, the long game. Real change will take time and is likely to succeed only in the hands of a non-sectarian leadership. Protesters favour the general mentioned earlier, Abdul Wahab al-Saadi, Pesha says. A lot of people say that they want to have a government that isn't run by like a vast group of political parties and that they would like to have something more centralised. And then the name Saadi gets brought up quite often as to someone who they'd like to have leading the government. Whatever happens, Iraq's youth and the population more generally will continue to suffer if the root causes of their discontent aren't dealt with. Pesha continues. I am sure that the government will continue trying to shuffle around uh, ministers and see if you know they can give some things to the protesters that will maybe quiet their demands a bit while continuing with a crackdown. Whether that works, I'm not. I am not sure of it. Might succeed in you know kind of quieting things for a while, but if they don't change the you know root causes of the protests, which are the you know corruption that's very endemic in the government, then I don't see them going away in the long term. A word from the former ambassador on Iraq's systemic problems. I, someone who spent five of the last ten years in Iraq, uh, 
believe that it is possible. But what is most important is to begin to create a sense of Iraqi identity. Um, certainly, Saddam Hussein had created an Iraqi identity based on Baathism and socialist principles and improved the equality of men and women, brought people from different uh, ethnic groups into the government and empowered them in a way that is not happening now. But the cost of that was the repression of the Ba'ath regime. What is important is that Iraqis begin to find a different sense of Iraqiness and a different sense of Iraqi patriotism. Nadia is less hopeful. I have lived before and after 2003 in Iraq, and I can see that the country is heading towards repeating the same situation or the same dictatorship that we have lived before 2003. Thanks to my guests this week, Pesha Magid and Nadia Mohammed. To hear more, tap the subscribe button in your podcast app and get all the latest beyond the headlines. And check out our coverage on thenational.ae. We were produced this week by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison with assistance from Liz Cookman and Mina Aldruby. I've been your host, Taylor Heyman.